Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. I want to say some things first about the culture and uh, especially perhaps about social media. And then I want to say some things about, uh, in the course of doing that, and then afterward, I want to say some things about what Aquinas has to teach us about sorrow. Uh, I found in reading Thomas on sorrow, I mean, he's, he's always brilliant, but sometimes you're just really blown away by the brilliance, and especially by the way in which his insights are directly applicable to lots of things in our lives and in our culture. Uh, In the mid-19th century, the great French political theorist Alexis de Tocqueville visited America, this great book, Democracy in America, which you haven't read. I highly recommend that you read it. It's still uh, probably the best book about America that's ever been written. And sadly, it was written by a Frenchman. Uh, But at one point, he talks about, and he actually has a lot to say, about the vice of Akchedi. He doesn't call it that. He talks about the strange melancholy of Americans in the midst of their abundance. Strange melancholy. This restlessness. He says at one point that Americans are sure that right around the next corner is the happiness that they long for. They get around that corner and it isn't there. Instead of learning from that particular defeat, some universal truth, they think, oh, it's around the next corner. And we keep doing this until at last, he says, we die. That's a pretty bleak. We had some bleak stuff last night. This just continue this this darkness of Advent. Uh, We'll have some light uh, to look forward to. Uh, that restlessness, that instrumental, that treating of goods as if they're all instrumental, right? We want to get into the good college. We want to get the good grades. We want to get into the med school. You were talking about this last night. We want to get the good job. We want to get the vacation home and the cars. And then at last, we die. Beautiful. <laughs> that's a general and Tocqueville has a great deal of admiration for this restlessness right because it's also connected to our entrepreneurial spirit and at least then he saw it as connected to a civic social spirit where we got together to build things and solve problems but this has always been an affliction of America and Americans I think today it's exacerbated by certain 
kinds of difficulties or deprivations that we suffer. We've got a, a significant decline in friendship in America, in personal friendship and perhaps especially civic friendship. Deep decline in the sense of belonging that most Americans want. Uh, surveys I've seen about personal friendships indicate that uh, from around 60s, 70s, and 80s, people would say they had roughly three and a half friends. I'm not sure what the 0.5 friend does for you exactly, but it's better than no friends, I guess. So 3.5 friends, that's now down under two in surveys. And sometimes when they frame the survey to ask uh, how many people in the last three months have you had a significant conversation with about something that matters to you, it goes down even further. That's, a, that's roughly a 50% decline in the number of friendships. We've also got a, uh, an even more significant decline or a parallel decline in civic friendship. John Haidt, the uh, moral psychologist from NYU, this was during, I remember this during the Kavanaugh hearings, right, when we were all at one another. That actually seems like a peaceful time, the Kavanaugh hearings, compared to, <laughs> compared to now. Uh, but, but Haidt, tweeted something. If you said, you want to know how we got to where we are? He tweeted out this survey that showed uh, in response to the question, do you hate members of the other political party? That that, again, over the same time period, 70s, 80s, 90s, into the early 2000s, hovers around 15%. It was up close to 50 at the time that survey was taken. Spike in depression and loneliness. The UK declared loneliness a public health problem a few years back. Lack of a sense of belonging. There's also this stuff, my, my precious here, right? Uh, our, our screens and our social media, uh, our, our recourse during COVID to Zoom existence. Um, which was interesting and fun for about 20 minutes, uh, and then afterward was not so good. Um, you know, at, at Baylor, uh, we were mostly open and mostly in person during COVID. But because high schools weren't, and some students have been afflicted, I've noticed, and my wife and I team teach occasionally a capstone course at Baylor on friendship. And Friendship is something usually students have a really easy time talking about. This has not been true in other classes I have, but we had a class last spring where we just couldn't get the students to engage. And it was, they were friendly coming into class, friendly leaving class, but they were in a, this particular group was affectless. They just didn't seem to be moved by anything. When Aquinas talks about sorrow, talks about the causes of sorrow and the effects of sorrow. The causes have to do with uh, the experience of evil or loss uh, in relation to others and my own experience uh, in relation to others of loss. When he talks about the effects of sorrow, he says the effect of sorrow is, to, is flight, that you want to flee from it. But anxiety and torpor which is another word for Akchadia, arise from the feeling that you're surrounded by something you fear, but you can't escape from it. 
Anxietas is the word that Aquinas uses. And torpor is an extreme version of anxiety. And Akshadia ultimately is, and fundamentally, is sorrow over the divine good. But it's also more generally can be described as a kind of immobility, right? So that you don't feel like getting out of bed in the morning. Or this is really this really struck me. Um, Aquinas says at one point, um, Achadia dicitur vocem amputare. Achadia amputates the voice, the human voice. What does he mean by that? He means by that that we find it difficult to, the, the voice expresses inner desire, he goes on to say. Right? Achadia is an affliction, one of the symptoms of which is that we can't say what our desires are, and we can't say what's wrong. Right? This sound familiar to you, your friends, your family, fellow students? We can't say what's wrong. We just feel unmoved by anything, unable to experience pleasure or delight. Despair, a uh, great novel by Walker Percy, his first novel of a moviegoer, uh, which he won the National Book Award for, uh, begins with a quote from Kierkegaard. Despair is the condition of not knowing that you're in despair. Or, as a character in Shakespeare's King Lear puts it, this is not the worst, so long as I can say this is the worst. Does that make sense to you? The worst would be to be in an awful condition and not recognize it as awful, to think it's normal, right? The ultimate, one of the ultimate symptoms and effects of Echadia is to be unable to say what is afflicting you and how you might remedy it. Liberal education, Professor, what Professor Snell said about good teachers last night, I think is absolutely right, and about what liberal education is. Liberal education, at least partly, especially in the Catholic tradition, is about helping us to name what's missing, to recognize disorder. And then it's about helping us to develop a vocabulary and a stock of stories that give us some grips on our condition, that enable us to have some perspective. I think that, I mean, I feel that myself. I, I work in liberal education, but I feel about our current time that if you step back from this or that particular battle or culture war or political fight, it's hard to get a perspective on where we are now. How do you understand how we got here, where we are? In that sense, Achadia is a kind of affliction of the culture as well. We find it hard. We sense that something's deeply wrong. We can say here and there, but we also feel that we're caught up in something that's really hard to fully 
articulate. So anxiety and torpor, both personal and cultural. Social media. Matthew Crawford, who uh, is a political philosopher, I think he has an appointment at the University of Virginia, wrote a famous article that became a book called uh, Shopcraft as Soulcraft, about the, the working with the hands and creating things as a way of formation of soul. He also has a book called The World Beyond Your Head. He's written a book recently about driving and risk. He's a, uh, by evening, a political philosopher and by daytime, a motorcycle repair guy. He says that the world of uh, the online world, the screen world, is the first of two observations I want to make about social media, gives us the illusion of what he calls a frictionless universe. It's a universe where nothing pushes back against my will. I don't like it. I go on to the next screen. Right? I don't like what these people are saying. I block them, and I affirm the people that I agree with. It's a frictionless universe. He actually uses, in this context, Freud effectively. I'm not a huge fan of Freud, but what Freud has to say about the difference between childhood and adulthood is true so far as it goes. That childhood, especially infancy, is about the pleasure principle. Right? It's about me as an infant getting needs filled that please me. These are natural instincts. These are not disordered pleasures. But as an adult, I have to learn to navigate the reality principle. The reality principle is that reality and other people push back against my will. What Crawford's saying is that the online world is a world of perpetual infancy. It's a world where I can, if I want, have nothing resisting my will. I can see what I want when I want it. And that's the second point about this. We know that they've done tests about this. There was one recent test um, where they said in the end that our addiction to social media likes and so forth and approvals is akin to rats in a Skinner box continuing to go back to get the food, right? There's something like a biological craving that develops. And the illusion of freedom is what we have, right? The frictionless universe is an illusion of absolute freedom. I'm in control. I have whatever I want. But Tolkien, as always, is helpful here. Right? Tolkien says that technology and magic are about the same thing. They're both about reducing to the vanishing point the gap between I want it and it appears. Right? So I didn't even have to want, I came in here to look around when it was dark. I didn't even have to want it for the lights to come on. I just had to move in now. right? But in the old days, I had to hit a switch. If I were in the Harry Potter universe, I would pull up my wand and say, Lumos. Magic and technology do the same thing. This stuff is dangerous, not just because the content can be dangerous, the easy access to pornography and things like that, that probably have increased pornography and addiction to our culture exponentially over the past 10 to 20 years. And it's not problematic simply because it's a time waste, although it is. 
it's problematic because there are dark powers pulling us. There's magic in this. Right? I don't mean to say that technology is demonic, right? but our connection to technology, the way we're wired, and the way in which it gives us what we used to go to magic to get indicates that there's, there's a danger here. This stuff is not neutral. Right? It's not neutral. That's the first observation, frictionless universe and magic about social media. The second thing is, and this is connected to our increased lack of a sense of belonging, right? breakdown in local cultures, uh, elderly individuals increasingly living alone, young people feeling increasingly isolated. This is artificial community, right? And it's, it is the case, to say something positive, it is the case that we can stay connected in healthy ways with people. I mean, one of the things I did like about the initial lockdown uh, was the freeing up of the schedule. And so there were friends all across the country whom I, whom I reconnected with and had Zoom conversations with. And if I didn't have the technology, I wouldn't have been able to do that, right? I stay in touch with family. There are lots of, there are lots of positive uses of this. But think about the way in which our Twitter behavior is by default, the, works with the assumption that anyone who disagrees with me is both evil and stupid. That's the default position on Twitter. Right, And so you have to own the opposition or get a good burn or dig in on the opposition. And some of those are entertaining. Right? I don't want to deny that. And there probably are people out there who, whose intentions are bad and who aren't that intelligent. And maybe some of those attributes are combined in the same people. I want to admit that that's, that that's true. But, but as a default position... For my response to anyone I encounter on Twitter, I'm not on Twitter, um, so you can't get me there. <laughs> you have to go elsewhere. Um, is that the people who think differently are evil and stupid? That the Twitterverse allows us to remain in our ideological cul-de-sacs, throwing rocks at people in other ideological cul-de-sacs. We're, we're a really angry culture. I, reading Aquinas made me think that beneath the anger are these deep pools of sorrow in our culture. We're actually more fundamentally a deeply sad culture and sad in the way that Aquinas describes Octavia. Aquinas says that with respect to evils, we fear them, then we feel sorrow, then we feel anger. We fear an evil as it's approaching. Once it's upon us, we feel sadness. Anger kicks in in both healthy and unhealthy ways, right? Because anger kicks in, Aquinas says, for self-vindication. Self-vindication there could mean get away from this evil, 
do something to minimize it. That's natural and healthy. But sorrow by itself is, as uh, uh, Father Jonah Teller pointed this out to me in a conversation we had a couple months back, sorrow is not a transitive emotion. Anger is. I can get anger out there at you. I can't get sorrow out there with you. I suppose if I talk about myself being sad all the time, I could make you sad too. But, but that's, a, that's a different way of talking about sorrow being transitive. Sorrow itself is not a transitive emotion. Anger is. If my life is afflicted with lots of sorrow that I don't know how to make sense out of, and I don't know how to minimize it or heal it or get rid of it, chances are I'm going to become angry. And chances are, if I don't know how to understand the sorrow, the anger is going to go this way and that, and is going to get channeled by larger social forces that I just latch on to. Fear, sorrow, anger. That made me think that sorrow is much more important morally and culturally and politically than I ever thought before. Sorrow is a passion, right? There are lots of passions. Anger is a passion, hope, fear. In the Catholic tradition, and especially in Aquinas, the passions are right there in the beginning when Aquinas starts to talk about moral matters in the Summa, right there at the beginning. Unlike certain philosophical views, unlike certain religious views, maybe Calvinist or otherwise, we realize the passions have been affected by sin as Catholics. But virtue is not a matter of suppressing, simply suppressing or eliminating passion. If I'm experiencing a conflict, as we all do, between reason or faith and passion, sometimes I have to smack that down. But if all I'm doing is smacking it down, that's not virtuous and it's not healthy, right? The model Aristotle talks about early in the ethics that we have a rational component to ourselves and a non-rational. The non-rational is divided into two parts. One part of it is simply biological, digestion and stuff like that. I can't do anything about that. I can, I can eat healthy, right? But I really can't stop my digestive system from working. The other part, non-rational part, is the passions. The goal there is to, for reason to persuade the passions, to order the passions. And in fact... If I don't have certain kinds of feelings when I'm faced with virtue or vice, I'm not virtuous. So Aristotle and Aquinas both say, no one is just who does not rejoice in just deeds. So if I do the good begrudgingly without enjoying it, that's better than not doing the good and enjoying doing evil, but it's not as good as doing the good with delight. And it's unhealthy for me because I should, my soul is meant to experience a connection between virtue 
and joy and delight. So the passions are meant to be persuaded, right? As, a, as, as Aristotle says, this is, a, this is not a tyrannical rule of reason over the passions. It's a healthy political rule where reason as leader persuades the passions. This is the good. Love this. Your desire will be more fulfilled in this than it is in vice. I actually backed into thinking about passion uh, by looking at the virtues and the vices in some detail. Uh, so I talked about, when Aquinas talks about, sorry, talks about the effects, anxiety, and torpor. The causes of sorrow, he connects to envy and mercy. Both envy and mercy are rooted in sorrow. Envy is sorrow over another's good fortune. Mercy is sorrow over another's bad fortune. I think we can say a lot about the state of our souls, whether we feel more sorrow in one case or in the other. Do we feel more sorrow over other people getting things that we think we deserve? Or do we feel more sorrow over other people getting bad breaks that we know they don't deserve? Envy is connected to pride and it's connected to avarice. I think, and mercy is blocked by pride and by avarice. If I'm envious, I'm thinking that, and Aquinas says especially, I get envious over another person's success that harms my honor or good name, that makes me look bad, makes me feel like I'm, and other people see me as less. That's a kind of pride. The really interesting thing about avarice in Aquinas is that the, the real problem with avarice, and he treats it as a spiritual vice, by the way, uh, and not just a vice of the body, treats it as a spiritual vice. Why? Because the avaricious take pleasure in themselves as the possessor of riches. And wealth is something Aquinas says is defined by our having absolute power over it. So what I possess as riches and as possessions is something I have absolute power over. This is mine, and nobody can tell me what to do with it. Right? Avarice for Aquinas is not so much about the stuff the money, the things, as it is about how the possession of the stuff makes me see myself. It makes me see myself as absolute in, absolutely in control of certain things and also as superior to others who do not possess those things. 
So avarice for Aquinas is one of the chief obstacles to mercy. If I'm secure and I have lots of possessions and lots of resources and lots of insurance, I'm likely to think that those things are mine because I deserve them and that other people who don't have those things and hence whose lives are much more vulnerable than mine deserve not to have those things and to have lives that are much more vulnerable. The proud, Aquinas says, are not merciful because they think that those who are afflicted deserve their afflictions. Both kinds of sorrow, right? In one case, envy, sorrow over another's good fortune, mercy, sorrow over another's misfortune. You know, we have a lot of what I would call CNN compassion, right? Where we can be flipping around, click on CNN, see something awful happening in another part of the world or right down the street say, oh, that's awful. And then we switch to the game or whatever it might be. Um, you know, we're talking about the Hunger Games last night and Suzanne Collins, who wrote that, said that she got the idea for the Hunger Games from flipping around on TV during the Gulf War and going from the Gulf War scenes of carnage in the Gulf War to whatever the Kardashian equivalent of the Kardashians was at that time, right? And the way in which this all seems to have become a form of entertainment. For Aquinas to have the virtue of mercy, and we sometimes want to relegate or limit mercy to forgiveness. It includes that, right? But mercy is heartfelt sorrow at another's pain and a willingness to succor or assist that person if we can. So it's not just the feeling of sympathy. And in fact, the feeling of sympathy is sort of neutral. I can feel sympathy, and we do this, right, as humans. If we hear an animal in pain, we feel sympathy. If we hear a child in pain, we feel sympathy naturally, right? We're moved. It hurts us. It's a natural instinct of ours. But if we hear a a young kid moaning in pain, oh my goodness, what's going on? And we turn around the corner and the mom is scolding the child for throwing rocks at a building or something. And the child is screaming, why won't you let me throw rocks at this building? We suddenly don't feel the sympathy anymore. And this is crucial for Aquinas, right? Because the virtue beyond the feeling of sympathy for Aquinas The virtue involves two other things. It involves the judgment of reason that that the suffering here is unjust, unwarranted. And then for Aquinas, it involves a willingness to help if we can. Virtue is always ordered to action. Now, there are lots of cases where we feel sympathy and we judge that there's an injustice or unwarranted suffering, and we can't do anything about it. The question is whether we're able to perceive in our midst the suffering of those around us and alleviate it when and if we can. That's the question. Iris Murdoch was a mid-20th century philosopher and novelist and agnostic. 
says at one point in this great essay that she wrote called The Sovereignty of the Good, criticizing most of 20th century moral philosophy, she said, you know, what we need from a moral philosophy are really just a couple things. We need some ideal that the moral philosophy is pointing us toward. What's the goal of becoming a good person? How do you understand that? How do you get there? We also need this to be based upon certain facts about human nature. The most impressive one to her as an agnostic is the way in which she calls this, this has become a kind of theme in my moral philosophy class. So if I don't mention it at some point, the students will mention it in the course of a class, just about every class. She calls it, the problem is the anxious, avaricious tentacles of the self. Say that five times fast. The anxious, avaricious tentacles. So if I if we only got like two minutes left in class, some kid will raise his hand and say, Professor Hibbs, tentacles. We have to mention the tentacles. So, and I love this, that the students are thinking about this. The anxious, avaricious tentacles of the self. The way in which, that's what you were talking about last night, what's the life you're not living that you wish you were living, right? It's the way in which we are deeply ingrained to twist the world and other people to our own wishes and fantasies, right? Our own wishes and fantasies show up lots of places, but they show up when we're envious and when we're not merciful, right? The tentacles show up when I'm irritated that someone else is getting the kind of attention I wish I was getting, or when people say things that I know is truth, know are truthful that make me angry that they've revealed a truth. The tentacles keep me from being merciful when I should be merciful. Aquinas asks at the end of the section on misericordia, which is broader than forgiveness, right? Because it has to do with a sympathy for those who suffer and a willingness to help them, especially for unjust suffering. Aquinas asks whether misericordia is the greatest of the virtues. Right? And he says, well, no, charity is, because charity unites us to God. But with respect to others, misericordia is the greatest of virtues. And misericordia, interestingly, reflects a certain divine attribute, God's mercy. But what Aquinas says is that it's the greatest sign of God's omnipotence. That's really astonishing that mercy is connected to God's omnipotence. Think about this universe that we inhabit, that God has created from nothing. And the bigger and more complex the universe gets for us, the more awe we ought to experience. It's not like the awe ought to be quantitative, right? That we give God a little more awe every time we realize the universe is a little bit bigger. But this massive, complex, astonishing universe, who could possibly, it's the, the line from Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the universe? That's omnipotence, to bring that into being from nothing. In some sense, God's mercy 
is an even more awe-inspiring sign of God's omnipotence. Right? If I understand, and here's a big difference between the ancient and the medieval world and the modern when it comes, let me say one word about justice and then and then wrap up. So on the modern view of justice, we start with a contract theory, right? Social contract theory. Contract theories are really clear. And Aquinas would actually say, yeah, that's part of justice. And it's a really clear way of thinking about justice. We enter into an agreement. I'm an individual, free, fully adult. I have to enter freely and consciously into the agreement or else it's null and void in a contract. The, the terms of the agreement and the fulfillment also have to be able to be fulfilled, right? I can't enter into a contract to, uh, I don't know, do things that Superman would do, right, on, uh, for you because it's just impossible. So that contract's null and void. On this older view, there are paradoxes at the heart of justice. I have obligations that are unchosen and which, strictly speaking, never end. To my parents, my community, my nation, and especially God. I can't get out from under that one. That's what we want to do as moderns, right? This is the, the autonomy that Professor Snell was talking about last night. I'd like to get out from under this obligation I'd like to be beholden to no one. We start out dependent and with obligations that we didn't choose and which we can never completely fulfill. The response to that should be gratitude. That's the virtue. But I also realize, Joseph Pieper says at one point, the person who realizes that his very being is a completely undeserved gift will be inclined to give to others even when it's not mandatory. The person who realizes that his or her being is an undeserved gift will be inclined to give to others even when it's not obligatory. That's the spirit of mercy, right? It's connected to gratitude. It's connected to generosity. This is a way of getting out, of getting ourselves out of the way, right? We're desperately clinging to those anxious, avaricious tentacles, pulling things into ourselves and our fantasies. But at the same time, we have this desire to get free of ourselves. We're tired of ourselves, right? We can do that through mind-numbing stuff here, or drugs, or alcohol, or other kinds of addictions. We can become, as the Pink Floyd song says, comfortably numb. That's for, the, that's for the rock, the rock humanities class right there. We can lead an anesthetized 
life. Right? We need anesthetics here and there, especially for surgery. Right? And there's no problem with certain things helping us to take the edge off a little bit or enjoy social life more. The problem with our culture is a desire for an anesthetized life. What do we do with the sorrow? What do we do with the sorrow? I think, first of all, we have to recognize that underneath an awful lot of stuff that's going on in our souls is root bottom sorrow, fear and sorrow, fear, sorrow, anger, right, for Aquinas. Let me end, and I'm happy to take questions. I want to end with this beautiful poem, prayer, from John Henry, uh, St. John Henry Newman, The Pillar in the Cloud. This is before his conversion when he was traveling on a boat leaving Sicily and he had been sick, didn't know what his future was going to be. It's, um, it's, it's just a beautiful poem, and it's about... It's a great Advent poem, and it's about hope in the midst of gloom and darkness. Let me read this. Lead kindly light amid the encircling gloom. Lead thou me on. The night is dark, and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. I was not ever thus, nor prayed that thou shouldst lead me on. I love to choose and see my path, but now lead thou me on. I love the garish days, and spite of fears, pride ruled my will. Remember not past years. So long thy power hath blessed me, sure it still will lead me on. Or moor and fen, or crag and torrent, till the night is gone. And with the morn, those angel faces smile, which I have loved long since and lost a while. Thank you. What that last line mean in the poem? Those angel faces which I've blown last six from my soul. And put that poem before. And that is the one, I've got it several times before. And that is the one I wish I was always stumbled me. Yeah. What does he mean? I think he's speaking individually and, and for the human race, right? That, that I think he's experiencing a kind of desolation, right? Where he doesn't. Um, he he has loved the angel faces, but he has lost. I don't think he's lost his love for the angels, but he's lost their smile. He doesn't experience their presence and their consolation and their beauty. And this is true for the human race as well, right? We were originally, in some sense, in harmony with the angels, and we have lost them, but only for a while. Yeah. Uh, towards the beginning of the talk, you talked about this sense of like belonging, how like the this idea that humans all belong, and I feel like, especially in, like modern day American culture, we believe in this like rugged individualism. I guess some of the expectations from the age, it's like 
I would imagine you can do anything you want, like, uh, like you know, you don't need help from anybody. Like, you can clear up yourself from your own bootstraps and yeah. you'll be able to survive. Uh, I think the church consistently teaches us like to like go to of community. Um, yeah. You know, like, say John Paul II, who says like humans are ordered to communicate with God and each other. Um, so in that American context, like how do we like reconcile both of those? Do you all believe in rugged in American individualism? That, does that inspire you? Is that how you see our culture? Yeah, I'll, I'm come, let me just take this and I'll come right back. Yep. I was going to say, it's like more of like to an extent, because I say that's how we were raised, but there's always an order towards community. Yeah. Like it's always good to like be able to work for yourself and not have to rely on other people to like carry you. But then at the same time, it's always good to have that community to go back to. Yeah. Anyone else? So, I want to say a, a yes and a no to rugged individual American individualism. Um, I, I think we could use more of it in a sense. And I don't think that we're motivated by it all that much. I, I think what I think we actually lack the resilience of the rugged American, or at least that, that the rugged American individualists claims to have. Right? One of the, I think one of the characteristics of our time is a kind of lack of resilience and inability to sort of bounce back. Uh, and, and perhaps taking, taking any failure that we experience as definitive of us. Uh, and there's something about the rugged individualist that would say, okay, I'm going to fail, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to, I'm going to do something else. Right. And that, and that the failure at least in some stories that we could point to, was a motivation for wanting to work harder and wanting to overcome it. I think we don't bounce back as much from failure. Um, and I think there are a lot of reasons that have to do with some of the culture things I was saying already. On the other hand, um, individualism is an illusion, right? I mean, as I try to point out to my students, individualism is a socially induced boast for us. Right? Why do you think you're individuals? Because everybody since the time you could speak told you you were an individual. And the most important things about you are that you're an individual. And again, there's something right about that and something wrong about that, right? If it makes you think you're automatically special, not because you've been loved into being by an almighty God, who died for you, but just because you're you, well, that's going to trap you. That's, that's a curse, right? That's a curse because you're always trying to find out what makes you you. And in some sense, trying to discern a calling is like that, but that's just not, not just what makes you you. That's what makes you you in relation to others and in relation to God. What makes you you just as you, that, that's going to, I mean, that's a curse, that we've uh, foisted upon young people in our culture, right? And it leads to lots of fake acclaim, right? What we should be focusing on is very clearly defined experiences of achievement. Do this and do it well. Not amping up the assignments to make it feel like this is Olympian contest, 
What can you learn to do well? And how can you enjoy doing that well? And how can your confidence grow from doing that well? That's not individualism either. That's a community where adults help you to see what achievement would, what the experience of achievement would be like. That's you doing the achieving, but not just as a rugged individualist. It's you doing the achieving, recognizing that you need the other, the other people we can't repay are great teachers, coaches, coaches, and mentors, right? And spiritual directors and confessors and preachers. We can't repay them for what they give us, right? We got to accept those gifts and do the best we can with them. In a sense, as an individual, it's my responsibility. No one's going to do it for me, but my responsibility is part of a community, right? So the rugged individualist has certain attractive features to it. There are actually some good things, but it's not, if in the end it's I did it my way from Sinatra, the rugged, that's the great rugged individualist song in the end, right? If that's where it heads, then that's, that's an illusion, right? But there's something right about saying, I got to take responsibility and I got to try to, I got to take this challenge and bounce back from it, right? That habit of resilience is, is something I think we've especially not done a good job in raising young people today with it, but we're not, but we adults are not that good at it either right? um, in our culture. So, yeah. Um, I'd just like to thank you for coming and speaking today. The lecture was absolutely fascinating. Um, you spoke earlier on about the fracturing effects of social media and the um, frictionless universe that it kind of deludes us with. But how much of that do you think we can attribute to the actual, like, to the isolation that American infrastructure itself provides? I'm thinking specifically of, like, suburbia. Yeah. Um, Could you repeat the question? Yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> so how much of uh, this, um, the what happens with the frictionless universe is actually a result of the isolation of American culture more broadly, suburbia? You know, it almost doesn't matter where we are now, right? No particular place, as Professor Snell was saying last night, because we're because this is disembodied and it's it's not, you know, the, the fact that we can't get anywhere now, even though we've been there a hundred times, without using our GPS, right, is a is a real affliction. Even if we're not in a rush, I mean, I sometimes I'll say to my wife, let's just put that away. We're not in a hurry, and we sort of know where we are. We've lived here for a long time. Right, this is just a different neighborhood, and it's not that she's more addicted to it than I am. But, but let's look around. Let's learn. Let's orient orient ourselves in space. Um, you know the 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 problem, and these are all connected, right? It's the the um, Brookings uh, Institution um, did a survey a few years back, uh, and it was about uh, young people in the workforce which is dramatic decline of young people in the workforce. This is a bad thing. It's not that young people are slackers or that they're not working hard or that they're not busy. In fact, they're involved in year-round travel sports. They're taking 18 AP classes. They're doing all kinds of stuff. Those are all activities that are monitored by the same group of adults, parents, coaches, teachers. 
best thing you can do for yourself is to work retail for a summer. Work retail for a summer. You have to learn to deal with coworkers, bosses, and the general public, none of whom care about you. <laughs> Not a good permanent experience, right? But it's a good experience, partly because you, you end up having both good and bad experiences there, right? And some of the good experiences are actually arise out of the bad ones, where you've got an awful customer and you and a coworker figure out how to handle it, or at least how to go in the back room and laugh about it after it happened. Right? You develop a kind of resilience through work in retail. That's better than summer travel, soccer, and better than an internship. Both of those things can be really good too. But there's something about putting yourself, I mean, the, when I, growing up here in the suburbs in College Park, when I got my driver's license and had my first job, I thought I was set forever. Shows you how much thought about the future I had at that point. I thought, this is all I need. A job so I got some money and a car so I can get out and spend that money with my friends and have fun. Right? I, I had no idea, and I was working awful. Budget rent-a-car jobs. Worked at a, a liquor store right on the border of D.C. and Maryland. Uh, in the summers in college, I had no idea that I was actually getting something of an education there. But I look back on it now and I was, right? Because I was learning to deal with, and I was learning to, to enjoy dealing with people whom I didn't know and were coming at the world from very different, it wasn't ideological so much, right? It's just people who had different expectations in the public square. This is really important for resilience. It's really important for enjoying that way in which the world and other people push back on your will that the reality principle is about, right? The world and other people push back on your will. How do you respond to that? Well, you can simply retreat until the pressure goes away, but then you're going to be in a kind of permanent retreat mode, right? You can start angrily fighting against that world when it pushes back. I think this is the this is the root of cancel culture in our in our civilization. I don't want anything pushing back against my opinions. I don't want to hear a contrary view. Right? Why? Because I want a frictionless universe. I want a universe where everything that I think and want is satisfied like that. The interesting alternative about the world and other people pushing back on my will is learning to enjoy this and learning how to navigate it. Learning how to compromise, learning how to find people that you do have shared deep convictions with and building something with those people. Right? So suburbia, yes, but you can be in the middle of a city, you can be way out in the country, and because of this, that's why young people's opinions are more and more homogeneous. It matters less and less where you come from. I mean, the, the culture from Boston College to Baylor is still really different, right? But it's not nearly as different as it was 20 years ago. Some of that change is good. A lot of it's not. Because there's a homogeneity of opinion that everybody's getting from here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.